Aidan Thompson here and welcome to the Pack Heavy podcast. Now this podcast is for anyone who works in the hospitality and food manufacturing industries who use flexible packaging to get their products to market. Featuring interviews with guests who have traveled the path that you're on so that you can learn from their successes and failures and engage in the mindset required to go all in on your vision. I call this mindset the pack heavy mentality and it's primarily driven by deliberate action and extreme organization. You gather market intelligence, put a strong plan in place, organize the appropriate resources, and then confidently test your hypothesis against reality. So if you're ready to pack heavy on your vision, you're in the right place, and I'm excited to have you here. G'day, and welcome to episode 81, where today I have guest Ian Walker, who is the founder and president at Hippie Snacks and owner of Left Coast Naturals. In 1996, a natural nut butter brand called Skeet and Ike entered the world and quickly grew into becoming an organic snack and distribution business, delivering their products locally and down into the northwestern states of the US. In 2008, Skeet and Ike changed gears and rebranded as Hippie Snacks, and in 2009, the distribution arm of the business broke off and became Left Coast Naturals. Today, Left Coast Naturals has a fleet of trucks, a 32,000 square foot warehouse, and a 10,000 square foot production facility located in Burnaby, BC. They distribute nearly 30 brands, 200 organic and natural bulk foods, and manufacture three of their own brands, Hippie Snacks, Left Coast Bulk Foods, and Left Coast Organics. Today's episode with Ian covers the startup story and operational nuances of Left Coast Naturals and Hippie Snacks, and really is a great conversation for anyone in the natural and organic space who is interested in the history of the channel and the shifts that a business can typically see over the course of two decades in the market. As Ian so eloquently put it during the conversation, we're all standing on the shoulders of the giants who came before us. And for those of you who are getting started in the industry, Ian Walker is one of those amazingly gifted, giving and humble giants. Enjoy. Ian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ian. Really glad to be on. Yeah, great to have you here. Um, I was fortunate enough to be introduced to you by Phil from This Commerce Life. Uh, this podcast is obviously a, uh, a common connection that you and I have. And then I did meet you at the CHFA trade show, a, uh, but it'd be a couple of months back now. Yeah. And I think you interviewed, I think RP uh, at the show. Yeah. I interviewed Richard, Richard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you call him RP? Do you? RP Richard Paul. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, mate, I had him on the podcast quite some time ago. And uh, when I was uh, fortunate enough to be invited to the CHFA and participate in their podcast booth, um, pretty early on in the conversation, they did want to know uh, sort of the context of the conversation that I wanted to have on the uh, during the episode. And uh, so I, I racked my brain. I'm like, who would be the perfect guest to have on to speak about the natural and organic segments? And um, and I went straight to Richard Pollock because he's he's the man. Great. And we have a, I have a podcast with him. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which I found out at the time. So yeah, obviously uh, that went to air as well. And yeah, I honestly, I really enjoyed this CFA trade show. It was a, uh, it was a great event and really nice to get out and like everybody said it obviously, but get out and see people's faces again and shake hands. It was great. For sure. Yeah. yeah. How was your experience there? Did you enjoy it too? Uh, well, just, I mean, it, it's always our favorite show. I mean, yep. it's, it's the hometown, uh, show being in Vancouver. So it's, you know, it's a big hugging show. So there was actually some hugging happening finally again. <laughs> I'm a hugger, so I'm yeah. happy for that stuff to start back up. And, you know, it's also just, you know, uh, I've been in this for 26 years every now yeah. and then you need like a, a little lift or a little pat on the back and, yep. and, um, so definitely, um, there's a lot of love being sent around. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of nice, you know, yep. especially when you're a you know, hometown guy, yep. um, that kind of fuels your energy that, that keeps you going through the, through all the other things. Mm. So, um, I always love this show. I mean, it's, it's a, it's an easy one. 
the tricky part is I've been around for a while. So you walk the show and you can't get anywhere quick because you're yeah. people and, yeah. and, and um, but that's what I love about the industry, right? Yeah. We're, we're, we're all reasonably close. Um, and there's always, at least if you don't know somebody, there's always one degree of connection mm. and, um, and people, you know, it's one of the rare industries where competitors help each other. I mean, sure. There's some people that are, you know, tooth and nail, but most people are, are pretty darn good. Yeah. Um, really picking up the phone or, or taking a call and, 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 and helping out when you need it. Yeah, no, I love that about the industry too. And, you know, you're just um, basically echoing everything that uh, that Richard said during that episode too, in that it is a really tight-knit community. And actually, I, I drew a, a few parallels between both yourself and Richard. Obviously, um, you've been in operations since 1996 between, um, you know, Hippie Snacks and Left Coast Naturals, which is the distribution sort of arm of your business. And, um, and, you know, uh, Richard obviously got going, I think it was around 2003, 2004, oh no, it's 2013, sorry. So a little bit later down the line um, with NSC. But, um, you know, the one thing that was sort of uh, noteworthy when I was doing my research on you and I was trying to sort of like um, uh, put together a bit of a framework for today's conversation was the fact that you were established in 1996 and there are some great organizations that are still kicking around from that era and two that come to mind obviously I've come from the coffee industry and uh, that was at Salt Spring Coffee and they were established in 1996 and I think Ethical Bean was around the same time and so the uh, common Ethical was a bit late Ethical was a bit later but was it uh, yeah he started uh, we were doing all the same shows yeah Yep. Started around yep. the same time. Yep. Uh, Tall Grass. Uh, yes. Matt started around the same time. Yep. Manitoba Harvest was one year later. With Mike Fanner. Um, yep. Yeah. There was a whole schwack of us that sort of started in those mid 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of grew up together. Yeah. And it's interesting because you all sort of have taken um, the hard line on um, sustainability, natural and organic, which back in 1996 was quite, um, you know, quite innovative at the time. Um, And I went back and I actually did have this discussion with um, Richard as well in the fact that you know, um, the CHFA was um, was formed in 1964, which way back then was pretty renegade. Like, you know, I can imagine it was definitely going against the grain. And if you go back and look at the history of um, natural and organic in the market, um, you know, it was really in the early 2000s that's, you know, it's sort of to take, sort of seemed to have taken a bit of an arc and hit sort of a mainstream adoption. You know, if you look back at 2002, the USDA adopted national standards for organic products. In 2003, Whole Foods became America's um, first nationally certified grocer. And you can look year after year, there were some pretty amazing things. In um, 2012, the US and Europe, which are two of the largest organic producers in the world, um, approved an organic trade agreement. And, you know, here we are in 2022 and things aren't slowing down, but you got in early and you've sort of witnessed this change, this growth, obviously an adoption into the mainstream market. But I find it fascinating that back in 1996, it was, um, you know, it was kind of, it was renegade. It was going against the grain. So I sort of wanted to Go back to the very start when you got started on Skate Nike's Nut Butters with Jason Dorland back in 1996. And, you know, what was the market looking like? Like, how did you get going and sort of where did you sort of, where did you anticipate the market going? For sure. First, I'll talk about the market and then I'll talk mm. a bit about a bit about us. Yeah. I can't talk about the market without talking about the, the companies and the people mm. Whose stole whose shoulders we got to stand on? Yeah, because there's, you know, there's multiple generations in this industry, mm. um, and definitely there was a whole crew of people that had really built up the industry through the 
eighties and the early nineties who I got to ride along, you know, a lot of people today will look at me, you know, 26 years and, and, and that, uh, you know, we were in early and, and I'd say we, we were definitely, but there was already a big crowd of people that had, that had really built it. The best example I can give is you really had to build this industry. So, um, nature's path was, was once upon, you know, Aaron Stevens, et cetera. There was a, a whole ecosystem. A lot of the people that founded businesses or ran the business have worked there at one point in time, but it was not nature's path. It was called Lifestream way back in the day. Right. And they, they, for them to build the natural food industry in this area, they had stores, they had a distributorship, they had manufacturing plants. In fact, they, they were licensed to make kettle chips up here at one point in time. So you basically had to do everything mm-hmm. if you wanted that because there wasn't like a whole host of suppliers to call or retailers to sell to. Yeah. And so, you know, these guys laid the foundation and then we came in and, you know, I really like your observation in that a lot of us from those mid nineties, we tend to be a little more uh, resolute in our conviction around, um, you know, uh, being a purpose-based business because yeah. um, you kind of had to be in those days, the economic um, motivation wasn't there as much. Mm-hmm. It was more around, this is just the right thing to do. And we want to lead the world or we want to, we want to move society and consumers towards this. Cause we know that it's uh, the right solution. Yeah. And that was kind of the mindset that I took into this was, you know, I, I don't want to just build a business. I want to build a business that matters. Um, and both Jason and I took that into the business as we started it. And, and really it was, um, it was more around that kind of revolutionary side of things a little bit. Um, and then, of course, as the tailwinds started to come in in the 2000s, you can ride those tailwinds, um, you know, and, and and you start to look like you were really smart. But really, we just happened to be the right place at the right time. Yeah. And yeah, our yeah. convictions happened to line up with where society ended up going. I mean, certainly, I'd like to think that um, we knew that karmically that's where things had to go and that the way that the world was heading, you know, you do have to start looking at your footprint, you do have to start looking at food supply, um, from a, from a obesity side of things, look at how you're eating from a health perspective, look at what you're eating, all of those sorts of things. So the fundamentals tended to lend towards the direction that we were anyway. Um, but certainly we were able to enjoy some tailwinds, but if I take you back to, to 96, um, you know, really I got lucky. I fell into this industry. It was, is because Jason, uh, my business partner uh, that I started this with, he uh, he was way ahead of his time. He was a vegan athlete in, in the 88 Olympics. Wow. And his wife was a vegan athlete in the 92 Olympics. Barcelona. Um, and so they, you know, they, they were living this lifestyle. You know, I, I wasn't even sure what organic was when I first came into this. I had an idea about it, but I didn't know everything. That's for sure. Yep. And uh, so certainly Jason led the charge in the early years, not early years, but the very start on that. As soon as I heard about it, I, I was more came from the environmentalist side, if you will. Hmm. Um, you know, I'd, I'd worked as a guide in the outdoors and it was a big, I was a big proponent towards protecting nature. Yeah. And that was kind of the the side that I came from and, and organic just really fit with that. Yeah. Ethical farming practices and soil health and so on. Yeah. So that was, you know, and, and, and I stepped into this, Jason had, had developed a, a product just eating at home. He was making some peanut butters and, and he was doing a graph design project at university uh, around packaging for that product and, mm-hmm. and said, Oh, you know, I wonder if I could actually sell this product. So him and I 
talked about that and I wrote up a little like two page business plan and, yep. and he's like, Oh yeah, can you help me with this? So, you know, we would, we, we really started making peanut butter at night uh, after our day jobs, we, we mooched a, a commercial kitchen for free and we would then sell at Granville Island on a day table and rinse and repeat the following week. Yeah. And, um, and then stores started asking for it. So we started selling stores and then we started realizing that stores wanted to us to use distributors, um, but no distributors wanted to carry us. So, you know, eventually we got into our own distribution mm-hmm. and, and, and that was the start where we really split our business and that we, we saw an opportunity for, for brands and we saw an opportunity for distribution. The, the other thing was that we really wanted to do organic nut butters, but just nobody would accept the price at the time. Yeah. And so one of the products we were trying to do was a, was a soy nut spread. So non-peanut, non-nut, you know, spread. Yeah. The spread wasn't very good. We didn't, you know, it was okay, but uh, I'm a big fan of taste, right? You should, yeah. you should you need to eat with taste almost. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't really care how healthy something is. If it doesn't taste good, I'm not going to eat it. Yeah. And so, um, but we, we liked snacking on the soy nuts, which is just a roasted soybean and soybeans are a pretty common commodity and fairly affordable. So we saw, Oh, great. We can do this as an organic snack and, you know, sell for under a dollar. So that's an accessible uh, organic snack. And that it's strange because that model is really something that we've really tried to push all the way through is, was, mm-hmm. was creating good organic food options. Mm-hmm. So for the first half of our manufacturing business, we focused on basically because there was no organic options, you know, creating an organic option that was never there before. So, so it was wide open territory, right? So we created the first certified organic popcorn in North America, the first mm-hmm. certified organic granola. And, and so it was bringing in these products that, that, uh, that just didn't exist. Mm. And then as those markets matured, then you start going to slightly more niche areas and, yep. and, and, but yet trying to make things accessible. That's amazing. Like you speak to founders and owners in this day and age, and there's a lot of product market testing, you know, validation around who their clientele is and, you know, they'll do, um, uh, they'll do a lot of sampling at farmers markets and iterate on their product until they land on an MVP that they can then go to market confidently with. But it sounds to me like you were just following your nose and you just happened to sort of strike some gold. Is there some truth in that statement or did you guys actually, were you quite strategic in like, you know, the offering that you went in early with and how you uh, got it to market? I mean, uh, definitely there was some thought and intention, but course, uh, yeah. at the same time, you know, we'd, we'd be in with a retail customer and he'd be like, you know, I have no organic options in the snack area. Yeah. Like, you bring me something here. Great. Yeah. So yeah. then you just start working away on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely uh, there's a lot of listening, observing, seeing where the, you know, I think any business is like this. You always mm-hmm. want to look for where the, 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 the white space is or the, or the, the wide open territory, the blue ocean you can provide yeah. something yeah. that, 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 that people didn't even know that they wanted, but they actually do want. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. Like we, you know, we do all of our own product development and, and, and we actually manufacture the products that, that we sell, which is surprisingly rare this, these days, but mm. definitely helps during supply chain issues. Yeah, I can um, and when we're in those meetings, you know, we, we do uh, brainstorming every quarter and, um, you know, occasionally a bunch of ideas come up. They're like, well, I'm seeing a lot of this out there. Maybe we should do something like this. And my answer is if you're seeing a lot of this, then it's too late. You know, so there's two or three products in the market. There's probably two or three coming. So now you're at six. And so do we want to be number eight in this one product mm. when you can only fit two of these on the shelf? Yeah. 
Or yep. would you rather be the first or second in, in this space? Mm-hmm. So I usually try to find like either blue or white space, or I try to find something where somebody's doing it, but they're not doing a great job at it, but we like the idea. Mm. So where do you look? Like if, you know, obviously you can look on the retail shelf and as you suggested, if you're not already there, you're too late to the market. Trade shows, you'll see such like items, you know, out there like at a CHFA and you're like, okay, I've already seen like three or four of you today. And, uh, and they're all tasting very similar and they've built the same sort of aesthetic and feel around their product and their brand because they're targeting the same audience. So when you are out there doing a bit of cool hunting and you're sort of projecting forward into the future and sort of placing some bets as to where you want to, um, you know, put your energy and time uh, for a, a potential new product, where do you, where do you start? Uh, well, it's definitely an art and science, right? Yeah. There's, there's, there's some scientific aspect to it. Like either, you know, you want to just, so, so we, we, for our ideas, you know, we're, we're visiting stores, we're, 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 we're scanning um, markets. Mm. Um, but it's also more just kind of, there's a lot of gut around this, like, we're seeing people start to go this way. And if you carry it further, this is where you'll end up. Or I'm just feeling a little bit of buzz around this. If there's a ton of articles about it, it's kind of too late. You kind of have to be earlier stage to get a general idea that it's starting to head that way. So like, for example, right now, like, plant-based cheese has really been popular. Well, we developed a plant-based cheese like 12 years ago. We never launched it because we we don't do refrigerated distribution and Mm -hmm. and couldn't get the margins right. But we we knew that something was going to happen there because there was, you know, if you think about it, like people like nuts and if you can make cheese from nuts and it's a nice simple ingredient list and you can get it to taste right, Mm. just something tells you that that could be a winner. Yeah. It's not, it's it's not hard to, to, to figure out. Yeah. Um, it's I just um, on a side note there, I've got a, I just interviewed Karen uh, McCarthy from Lumi Foods and that was an amazing episode. And she was like quite early in, you know, in the development of her business as well. And, you know, the growth of that plant-based cheese. And I had Margaret from um, Nuts for, um, yeah, Nuts for Cheese as well. So yeah, I've, I've had a couple on and, uh, and I've also got Jordan Rogers coming up as well, who's with the very good uh, food group and they've got their cheese out in the marketplace too. So yeah, we're definitely seeing it out there. Yeah, no. So, so definitely it's, it's, it's a bit of an art and science and you've got to scour a fair bit of things, you know, to find that kind of diamond in the rough, Yeah, you know, we'll, we'll look at hundreds of ideas and then, and then really pin it down to one. And, and we've also honed how we do it, right? Like we, I think a lot of times you try to push the envelope too far. Like if this is me too products, like the same as everyone else, and this Mm. is like extreme, like completely revolutionary, but maybe only a few people will like it. Mm. You're trying to find that happy medium that'll appeal to a wide audience, but but will still be different enough that it draws attention, that maybe it's exciting. It has a bit of a talkability factor because your, 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 your audience, your, your customers can, can be the best advocates for Mm. you. So Mm. if they love it, they, they, they tell their friends about it. They, they, they continue to buy it. Um, and, and, and that's the basis for, for product selling. Well, you know, if you don't have that, then, then you'll never be successful. Yeah. I hear it was interesting. Uh, when you launched your um, new cauliflower crisps and uh, your range with hippie snacks there, um, I noticed at the time you had Lauren as your marketing manager there, and she did a series of online um, tastings and like put a string of videos together. And I thought that was really innovative in itself because at the time it was in the middle of COVID, you couldn't get in front of buyers, you couldn't sample and, you know, um, you know, give your potential clients some product to taste test. So it was really cool that you guys took that tact and, uh, and went in that direction. And I've used it as an example with a couple of my clients here at Food Pack as well. So yeah, I thought that was good. 
Yeah, she'd have to get like close to the screen so you could hear, hear the, the crunch. crunch. I know, I loved it. Bag. <laughs> this is how many product bag. This is yeah. how many chips are in it. You can see the bag. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Know. I thought that was kind of innovative and a great way to sort of get around what seemed to be a bit of a hurdle or a bit of a problem at the time. So, uh, yeah, hats off to the team there. And um, yeah, I, I got a lot of value out of that. And the, the funny thing is, we we have to do the same thing for distribution business because. We don't carry a lot of products in the distribution business. Our, our model is carry a few products, do a really great job on them, yep. go yep. deep. Yep. And so with that, we we really scour and look at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of products to list maybe two or three s- similar with the, with the brand. Mm. And so when we go visit stores in the US or we go to a show, we're looking for products to distribute and ideas for hippie. And yep. sometimes it, the same thing can fall in both ways. Mm. Um so we're trying to do the same thing. We're trying to not bring in, you know, the 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 eighth popcorn. Mm. Uh, we're, we're trying to bring in something different. Awesome. Um, considering the fact that you've sort of got the two arms of the business, I can imagine early on, especially while you, it was just the two of you getting started, you know, uh, focus could have potentially have been something that you would have really have had to have focused on for a lack of a better word. But, you know, um, dividing up your attention between the distribution arm of the channel and um, of the business and also product developments and hustling your own brand. So as the business grew, obviously you've been at it a couple of decades. Was it something that you had to actively work on? You're like, okay, today I'm going to be focusing on this part of the business or, and today I'm going to be focusing on that. Or was it something that you had to develop over time? Like I can imagine it would have taken a while to iron out. Yeah. It, it, um, the evolution would be, I mean, you, you, you give attention to part of it and then shift it over to the other side and then back and forth a little bit, but there is kind of macro trends Mm -hmm. within that. So there's micro trends on a kind of daily, weekly, monthly kind of thing, but there's also sort of yearly macro trends. Mm. And if I look at it, the, the first couple of years was really, we didn't start the distribution until about 98. And Jason was actually out of the business by then. Oh, right. Okay. He was an owner, but he, he wasn't active in the business. Yeah. Um, and, um, but, you know, we'd have, we, that was where we would hire people like, so, and in those early years, right. You're kind of like, you need to hire 12 people. You're like, I can hire one. So what's the like one person I need this year. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking that I'd be like, okay, well, if I hire a salesperson, then I'll do ops. If I hire an ops person, then I'll do sales, like (laughs) figuring out what, how that fit with what I could do and, and, and what was manageable. Yeah. Um, it basically the macro shift was focus on the brand at the start. Um, so we, we started with nut butters with the Skeet Nikes brand Mm -hmm. and then uh, worked our way into soy nuts. And then that got us into the snack area. And then we stopped doing nut butters by 99. All right. It's also about the discipline of what are you going to do? But strategy is also, what are you not going to do? Yeah. Killing that sacred cow, they say. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really important to like, I've been a big fan of this and I still am a big fan of this. Do a few things really well, as opposed to quite a few things, not that great. Yeah. So even though we do a bunch of stuff in those areas that we're in, we tend to hone on it. So that fits with what we're about. Like with our distribution, we only carry a limited number of brands so that our reps know every product Mm -hmm. and so that we can really execute well for those brands. So, and for example, we do bulk foods. We sell in the stores for bulk bins. We only focus on organic and we are experts in organic. So instead of trying to do everything and have to be experts in all areas, we'd rather focus in a narrow or gauge area. Same with within our brand, you know, there's a million ideas, but it's not about having, I don't want to be a, uh, a, 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 product, a brand with like 
80 SKUs. I'd rather be a brand with five SKUs. Yeah. So we tend to kind of be disciplined around not getting too in love with something that's not working anymore and kind of letting that go and bring in the next, like we've had to keep reinventing and reinventing. Mm. So on the focus side, it was probably brand the first couple of years. And we did make some mistakes. We, 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 we really tried to go deep in, in then launching our products into the U S and we really blew our brains out because, you know, we didn't have a lot of staff, as you mentioned, and it was mostly me running around all over, you know, and then I hired a, a sales manager, I guess it's probably too strong a term, but um, who would go to like Los Angeles and, and San Fran and then Portland and then out to Chicago. And, <coughs> and we try to cover all these areas. We were growing the brand, but we weren't making any money. We were losing our shirt and, and the, yeah. the cost of doing business in the States from a marketing perspective and, and what they want on deals. We didn't have the margin to do it either. Mm-hmm. And I had a smart person say to me, listen, like, are you kicking butt in your own home market? Like, are you dominating here? And I, the more I reflected on it, the more I said, you know, we're not, we're doing okay, but we're not doing incredible. He said, well, circle back, you know, shrink into your area and, and really focus. And so we realized we had built good relationships in Western Canada and we had, you know, um, and we had already launched distribution. And the good point is as a distributor, you know, you're carrying multiple brands, you start to become more important for the retailer. So you're going to get meetings, you're going to have strong relationships, you're considered important to them. And so you have some leverage as a, as a single brand, you don't have as much. So that gave us a bit of oomph with, with the buyers in, in, in Western Canada. So we, we, we actually sold in the States from about uh, maybe 98 till 2001 or 2002. And then we retreated, Got you. came back to Western Canada. And that's when we really built up uh, the distribution. We said, we need a strong base here. We also had done some private label uh, for the manufacturing mm-hmm. and that ended up going away. So we said, Oh God, from a financial perspective, we've got to have a base. So the manufacturing was the base. And then as that went away, we really rebuilt the district or built up the distribution and really cranked that up. And then that became the economic base of the business. Yeah. So from sort of maybe the early 2000s through to at least 2010, 2012, we focused on distribution. We continued to grow our brand. Mm. And and then during, at the end of that period, we transitioned from Skeet Nikes, which was more um, organic options that weren't available before. And as I said, as the market matured, we evolved into hippie snacks where we said, hey, listen, we're going to do a few more, we're going to do some products that are a little more revolutionary that are a little more um, whole food based and, and interesting. Not that we weren't whole foods based before, but that's the part we wanted to emphasize. Yeah. And so let's shift to that. So in sort of the early 2010s, we started shifting a bit of our focus back towards the brand. Mm. And and not that you take your eye off the ball on distribution, but you just you know there's a there's a slight weightiness to it, and 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 so we really worked on developing products. Um, refixing you know getting the brand right so we transitioned from skeet nikes to hippie and then figured out what hippie should be took us a couple years and then we got hippie dialed in and just really started to build up the team around that and then we re-entered the u.s about three and a half years ago Mm. and sort of have been building that Mm. and actually have gone back into private label so we've really been building that the last little bit uh and now we're seeing okay maybe we need to shift some focus back to distribution because now we're looking to go national as a distributor Okay. So 
that's the beauty of being in business for a long time is that you can see these periods. So we had manufacturing and distribution and manufacturing. Mm. We may have to go back to distribution a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Like how much can be achieved over a 26 year period, but also how the business model, you know, iterates and shifts and adjusts over time. And, you know, when you're setting out on a, on a business venture and you've got your business plan and you've got a vision for the business, it's really hard to sort of project far into, you know, far into the future. Because as soon as you get going and you, then rubber hits the road, obviously things change straight away and there's got to be that constant sort of um, evolution. Um, but when you break it down into sort of like five year or even 10 year periods, so decades, it's amazing how much you have changed. So when you're projecting forward now, another sort of five or 10 years, do you see sort of many shifts or is it more about consolidating what you're already doing and, uh, and trying to just like you keep on scaling and growing? Well, I mean, we, the one thing we did do was that um, we saw by the early 2010s that we, um, we were finding we weren't as effective as we had been. And so both businesses had kind of matured a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And so we decided, listen, we need to, cause we had one strategy for the whole business, which makes no sense when you had a brand that's a, that you're manufacturing in a distribution business, mm-hmm. we kept having these strategic planning sessions that were kind of awkward. And so we said, okay, you know, we need to, even though we're one company, we need to separate these businesses and have separate staff, separate financial reporting, separate yeah. strategies, separate meetings. Mm. Um, and so we worked sort of as we got towards, I think around 2014, 2015, we transitioned towards that. And yeah. now we've been able to, you know, you see the numbers and that was super apparent. We realized, oh gosh, we're not making that much. We're, we're actually losing a ton of money on our brand and making way more than we thought in distribution. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, we better fix the brand. And, and that was where a lot of the shift in focus came over around getting the SKUs right, getting the products right, and then expanding the, the scale because we, we we had quite an infrastructure um, that could really grow. We built it to grow, but we hadn't um, really emphasized growth yet. Yeah. 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 Um, so we, we did a fair bit of that, fair bit of that work. Um, and that really helped us to, to, to see what we were maybe not getting right and, and, and getting right. And it's, you know, I kind of shake my head that we didn't do it earlier, but you know, you make these, <laughs> you get your head down and, yeah. and the overall numbers look okay. Then you, you don't get too stressed about it, but mm-hmm. um, you have to keep challenging yourself and reinventing yourself for sure. Mm. But we're, but looking at where we go with these businesses um, really are on, as a distributor, we, we don't plan on getting into the States. It's, it's such a different distribution market there. Mm. We do want to be the, the, the sort of premier sustainable food provider across Canada as a distributor. Mm-hmm. So we've put our, we've dipped our toe in onto, into Ontario and we plan on really expanding that. So um, over the next couple of years, that's our real emphasis is going national, cool. um, building relationships in the East, building national relationships, you know, beyond what we already have, because we have lots of national relationships, mm-hmm. but, um, and then continuing to refine the portfolio. I think our, our model on, on how we operate with a limited brand number of brands, we're also like a broker brand manager, distributor all rolled into one, which is mm-hmm. kind of unusual in the market. Yeah, it is. Um, so we, we have that kind of difference maker, you know, we don't try to emulate the big guys, mm-hmm. um, because we'll always end up as second fiddle if we do. Mm-hmm. On the on the on the hippie side, we 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 have a, a quite audacious goal there to be the better for you snack leader in North America. 
So that's, you know, that's when they say BHAG, that definitely fits under BHAG. So it does, um, yeah. And we think that we have the right platform. So um, people get it when they, when they hear the name Hippie Snacks and a lot of the products really fit with that. Um, and so it's just around continuing to, you know, I think we've been really good on product development and, and, and actual products. And uh, the thing we're working on is, is more the um, connection with the consumers, the emotional connection, um, and more the, the, the marketing aspect as opposed to the product aspect. Mm. Um, and that kind of stems, I think my natural talents are a little more in developing products and seeing where the market needs. I'm not great at like, uh, bragging or telling our story here, <laughs> just the mar- marketing stuff tends to not be my forte. Right. Um, so of course we have people that do that and, and we need, we've tried to put more emphasis on that in the last little while. Yeah, that's cool to hear. Um, I've been fortunate enough to um, record a couple of episodes today, and I just had on Jake Carls from Midday Squares. And, you know, obviously he is the face of the brand, and yet he is completely the opposite. And, you know, we were having the discussion around the fact that in today's uh, world that we're living in, that it is important to have a really strong brand story and, you know, build personality and community around your brand and product. And I was reflecting on how that could potentially impact you. And and one of the questions that I did have for you is, you know, what are the natural skills that you've leveraged? And it also ties into the piece as well. And and this is the real question that I'd like to ask you, you know, like over a 26 year period, I can imagine there would have been some extremely critical highs at some critical points that you've had to make. But early on, what do you sort of see as some of the the most critical highs that um, that you made early? And the impact that that had on not only the growth, but the development of the business as well to support you. Um, I mean, I I think that because uh, you talked about what are the things that I can do, I think that that's yeah. very related on what you hire. And when I yeah. talk to entrepreneurs or other people in the industry, you know, maybe they'll, they'll call up looking for advice. That's one of the first things that I always talk about is mm. what is your special sauce or what is the thing that you bring where you add value to the business? Yeah. And how, and what are the areas maybe that you're not as great at so that you can, you know, in a perfect world, you double down on the stuff you're really good at and, 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 and hire people for the things that you're not as great at. Yeah. You can't do that as fast as you want. Cause you don't, you know, unless you raise a ton of money, sure you can, but mm-hmm. I tend to have a different model there. Like we are completely self-funded. We have no investors. I'm the only owner. We built this thing on cash flow, So I've had to do it in a very strategic you know, um, measured manner mm-hmm. and which, which lends itself to this particular conversation uh, around that in that I would look at what can I do really well and, and what are the things where other people can add value for me? Mm-hmm. Um, so going back, some of the key hires, um, you know, back in the late nineties, when we did enter the U S I was running around like a chicken with my head cut off, um, trying to build the market in the U S and one of the things I did was I, I looked at hiring an ops person so that I could be set loose. And I looked at hiring a sales person so I could be set loose or mm-hmm. so that they could be set loose. Yeah. And I ended up hiring sales because I knew that if I did sales, I'd somehow get pulled back into ops anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, the beauty is that I, I hired somebody in sales and really made them had them focus on hippie or like the time it was skeet nikes so building the u.s market and building the canadian market for our brand that allowed me to really double down on the distribution and build that business so that when some of the private label went away and when we ended up pulling back out of the u.s we had a good foundation if i hadn't been able to 
shift my focus and build that, maybe we wouldn't have had the foundation to survive that. Mm-hmm. So that was a real fundamental one. Um, I think building some uh, finance team so you can understand your financials really well. So you have analytics going on. Uh, that was critical. Yeah. Uh, and then as we got into the late 2000s, I didn't have anybody in marketing till the late 2000s. Really? So hiring in marketing and, and actually pulling that into it uh, was super important. Did, were you working with an agency at the time? Like no, were you we outsourcing nothing. it? You weren't doing anything. Nothing. Holy shit. Crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. It was, it was like doing stuff at store level. And, yeah. 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 Got you. Um, so it's, you know, you didn't, I guess it's a bit of a different game now, but it is. Have- yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so we're so lucky to have the the accessibility and the platforms that we can work with now. Whether it's you know a TikTok or an Instagram or you know even a brand and you know our networking opportunity like we all have with LinkedIn right now, it's it's pretty incredible. But back then, I was even thinking about like the um, the software that you were potentially using back in the day as well to manage and track your inventory and you know um, you know do all of your accounting. Like, what were you using back in '96 when you first got started? Just spreadsheets or? Yeah, it's all just spreadsheets. Yeah, wow. It was maybe Lotus One, Two, Three at the time, right? I okay. think it was around. Yeah. yeah, I remember my grandfather had that loaded up on his first laptop that he brought home. It was really cool. Um, okay, cool. So, you know, you just mentioned that you basically bootstrapped the business. There's no outside financial investment. Um, so when you were growing the business, what financial metrics did you put the most value on um, to evaluate the company's performance? I mean, at the end of the day, Profit is king. Yeah. Um, can't make money. You can't, you know, you're not able to pay people. You you can't um, have money to reinvest into the business. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of the first, second and third. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just stating the obvious there. Uh, yep. So I'll, I'll almost set that aside for, for a second. Um, you know, I've never been, uh, somebody that wants to hit a certain sales level. So while I like sales growth, and I think that's important, I haven't got obsessed about that. Mm-hmm. To me, it's more around, I think the most critical one is around gross margin. Um, because if you're making good margin on your products, and, and we we haven't always been successful at this. So um, uh, just because I'm saying this doesn't mean that I'm great at it. Mm-hmm. But I know it's super important and I, I value it very highly because when you make good gross margin on product, it tells you that people value the product that you're selling, that they are willing to pay a little bit more or they're willing to pay a premium for that. It tells you that you, you have the right product or service that the consumer wants and is willing to pay more for it. To me, that's the sign of, of, a right, of the right strategy and of the right business. It, 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 anybody can make product and give it away. If you give it away at cost, anybody can do that. Yeah. 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 But yeah. doing it at a premium, I think then you got to really think and you got to have the right, you know, the thing that stands out and, and, and that actually some stuff stands out, but consumers don't even care. They're like, yeah, what do you do? Okay. Mm-hmm. Sure. That's different, but it's not something I actually want. Mm-hmm. So to find something that stands out and that consumers get excited about that's, you know, that's where the magic happens. Mm, that's incredible. Um, back in, when I first started managing a cafe, uh, I was 19 years old and I was working for a company back in Australia called Hudson's Coffee. And the business model was very similar to a McDonald's business model in the accuracy of tracking inventory and stock control. And we did a month end at the end of every month. Uh, and we were we had the capability and ability to review our financials very quickly, you know, whether it was a PL statement and, you know, looking at and tracking our waste and so on so that we could make 
you know, pretty, pretty quick um, adjustments on the business to pull things back into line for the, for the new fresh month. And so, you know, I can imagine that having the ability to get data into your hands so that you can make adjustments quickly would be pretty critical. But are you guys, you know, reviewing your financials, like, and obviously you don't have to go into too much detail here, but I'm talking more in like inventory management and tracking and so on, so that you can make decisions and even, you know, um, sales and marketing decisions as well. Are you reviewing things on a monthly basis or a quarterly, or how do you guys sort of go about things at Left Coast? Yeah, we have a cadence to everything. So we, yep. we actually have daily metrics that go out. Okay. Um, so we see a dashboard every day. Yep. Everything from sales to gross margin to fill rate to we have a thing called a perfect order score. Okay. Kind of everything is correct on the on the deliveries. Yep. Um, and then we we have some uh, we also have production daily metrics like around uh, you know what we should make, you know, if, if hundred percent is what you should make today, how what were you at 90, were you 80, you know, yep. based on cleanup and, and things like that. Uh, then we, we have a few weekly ones and then definitely lots of monthly. Mm-hmm. And then we do a monthly financial review every month, our management teams, uh, the, the finance team reports it. It's usually about, uh, about three to four weeks after the end of the month. Yep. So every yep. month we review the previous months. Yep. Yeah, uh, financials and there's a analysis to it, and we have a you know at least an hour, an hour and a half discussion on it, mm-hmm. um, and everyone sent it to review that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and and then we're we had quite a robust metrics one. We scaled it back, and now we're building it back up again um, around monthly metrics. Like each, definitely, it's part of our quarterly reviews with our staff. Mm. In departments, it, it's a we've probably got a little more loose with it. So some departments are really good at it, some departments aren't as much. So now we're trying to rein it in and get it kind of tightened down again. Mm. Um, you know, welcome to business. You'll you'll put emphasis on something and then ten other things come up, so then it comes off a bit and then yeah. it kind of comes back in again. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's definitely the, the the financial review is really important. We always want to know where we're at. Mm-hmm. Um, the the thing that we're adding a little bit more on is around the 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 we just we never really had a crm so we're, we had a very simple crm and we're very very early stages there to see how i think there's some early learnings there so trying to leverage that a little bit more for data around mm. what's going on at stores and what what the reps are up to we hear it more anecdotally and, and you see the overall results but um having some more kind of on the ground information would be great yeah, cool. It takes a while. Like there's so much data out there and you can, you know, draw KPIs and, you know, analyze data in so many different ways. But I can imagine it would take a while to sort of figure out what data and KPIs are meaningful to you and specific to your business. Was that something that took a while to sort of figure out as well? Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I guess I'd have to reflect back. I mean, yeah. it's been a while now. I mean, the one thing I do know is that just um, less is more. You know, yeah. I've said this before already. Yeah. So better to have one or two that you really focus on per se department or yep. for the company yep. opposed to, you know, you can impress people with a hundred metrics that yeah. you're looking at. Yeah. There's no way you have the time to dig into those and really learn from them and really do things. It's what are the ones that actually move the dial that actually matter and yep. then dig deep into those. Yeah, I agree. Just keep it simple. And, you know, especially for business owners and operators that are just getting started, you know, they've hit the ground running, they've got their product in, you know, a few locations and they're starting to try and develop what it is that they're looking for to, you know, keep on scaling and growing. That's really good advice. Just keep it simple. 
um, over the 26 year period, I can imagine that, you know, being a leader within your organization is something that you've had to develop and work on over time as well. Would you suggest that your leadership style has changed over the years or have you found that, you know, you've stayed pretty consistent? Uh, I mean, any leader, sorry, the car. No <laughs> any leader has to evolve for sure. Uh, especially if you're around for quite a while. Mm. Um, and if you have some members that are around for a while, you know, and even if you have a new team, then you may have to adapt to how they like to work. Um, so I would say I've definitely adapted. I mean, at the starting, you're doing everything, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so then you then you start hiring people and, and you start figuring out, okay, how can I let go of a few like on the ground things, and and then you then you have to figure out how to let go of of um, some management, um, and then as you build the business, then you got to let go of managing managers a little bit hmm. um, and making sure they're there. And, and a lot of that is around your hiring practices and bringing in the right people so that you can, um, so that you can count on them. Trust. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Everyone uses the word trust. Like trust means two things. Like hmm. there's trust where, you know, you, you think they're going to lie to you that there's that trust. Hmm. And then there's what I call confidence hmm. that trust. Mm-hmm. And so, um, the confidence one is, is something that definitely you want to experience and, and make sure that they, you know, that they are accomplishing things. And, and that's one that I, in the past have struggled with a bit more and, and, you know, always as a leader, you continue to a little bit. Um, so that's something I'm always challenging myself on and kind of taking some chances. You know, you, you do realize, I think that's one of the things where I have evolved where people have to fail a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely COVID. We had to do a couple quick, uh, switches at COVID. And I was like, guys, okay, let's just do this. I'm going to let, let go of the reins here. And, and, and if we make some mistakes, then that's okay. We'll just figure it out. Um, so sometimes situations force you into change as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I've, I've always called myself a reluctant leader. Like I, I, I love people. Um, I don't know that I always love managing people. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to be more around trying to set an example than, yeah. than, and trying to, you know, I, if I have to be a cheerleader, I can do it just fine. Uh, but it's not something that I'm like excited about per se. Mm. Um, whereas some people, they just like thrive on that. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, it's been a, that's, that's always been a thing. So for me, it's been a lot around trying to hire good, good people under me or good managers under me that like managing people so that I have kind of a smaller group that I'm dealing with. Mm. Um, Definitely, you know, I'm less in the weeds and, and less on the lower stuff, which is, you know, especially after 26 years, you can't, you don't, you just don't have the stamina to do that all the time. Yeah, I can imagine. That can, that can just, that can kill you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I now try to just focus on big picture stuff and, yeah. and what if, and it'd be re- continually reminding people, what is the stuff that actually matters? Mm-hmm. Um, I also see my role these days as more like trying to clear all the clutter away. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I tend to be the guy that keeps bringing it back to the simple, bringing yep. it back to the simple. Cause I don't know what it is like the, what do they say? It's the, uh, the universe wants to make things complicated mm-hmm. <laughs> or people want to make things complicated. Yep. And uh, so I'm always trying to bring it back to that simple. So that's, that's, that's tends to be part of my role. Perfect. If you had the opportunity to go back and whisper in your ear back when you were getting started in the industry with the knowledge that you have now, what would you tell yourself? You know, I, I don't know if I ch- change a ton in that 
you know, we are where we are today because of the mistakes we made. Yeah. You know, if I didn't make those mistakes, maybe I wouldn't be the same person. Um, and I'm proud of what we've done. So I certainly wouldn't want to, you know, the go back in time and change stuff scenario. Who knows what option B would look like? Yeah. Quite like option A. So I'm not the sure. butterfly effect. Yeah. Who knows? We yeah. Have to, yeah. Um, but as far as, you know, I, I might have uh, hired people a little bit earlier. I was mm-hmm. quite careful with money, um, you know, which is another, you talked about uh, metrics and things, you know, you want to have good, you, you want to have good cash flow. Mm. That's, that, that's fairly important. So you're not mm-hmm. you know, beholden to the bank or beholden to, to, to suppliers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I might've, I might've suggested hiring people earlier, I also might have shifted my focus to the brand a bit earlier because you mm-hmm. definitely build uh, value there. Um, those would be probably two of the pieces that I might uh, that I might change. So focus on brand development and get that foundation really strong and high strategically and a little bit earlier. Yeah, yeah, probably uh, not being so 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 careful on the. Uh, on on when I did the hiring, I would do it a bit earlier for sure. Yep. You just mentioned something interesting about, you know, um, the the financial aspect of the business and, you know, the fact that you have bootstrapped it. Is that inherent in your nature? Like, is that, that's got something to you, I'd love to sort of dig into that a little bit further. Like, who's Ian Walker? Like, why are you so financially sort of um, controlled? Like, is that something to do with your upbringing or, you know, what's the background there? Uh, wow. You got an hour. (laughs) Um, sorry, I have to cough again. No worries. Um, what's a couple of things, you know, it's, um, I do believe that, um, you know, you want to build a business where you can think long-term. And so if you're behoven to shareholders or you're behoven to the bank, you you can't always think long-term. So I think all the best strategic decisions, definitely I was brainwashed on this as a, as a, as a young person. And I'll explain why in a minute that long-term thinking wins out usually over the long-term. So planning strategically and being able to give yourself the time horizon to let that run through, you'll generally win in the end. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the tortoise and the hare race side of things. I tend to be on the tortoise side. Um, And so if you go too quick, then you have to raise money and then you become behoven. And then, you know, it's the cycle kind of goes on. So yeah. Part of it is that understanding that philosophy that if you think long-term um, and that you kind of keep yourself, you, you're going to be open to more options if you don't have, if you're not like deep in debt or mm. deep, like, I don't love debt. I've never liked debt. I've kind mm-hmm. of was raised with that. Um, and also our flexibility on things, I've been there, especially, you know, we talked earlier about purpose-driven business and sustainability. There's a lot of stuff that we do that, that shareholders would be like, what the hell, why are you spending money on this? But I can just do it. Mm. You know, we give out sustainability bonuses to our employees and and that's probably a, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but it's probably a $50,000 program. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, where we, you know, we'll pay them to, to ride bikes to work or to eat organic food at home or to, or to, 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 um, take transit and, uh, 
you know, if I had some shareholders, they may be like, you know, really? Like, does this actually add? They did want the, the ROI on it and mm. all this stuff. And I'm like, well, the, the ROI is just we're doing the right thing. Mm. We have happier employees and, and you know, we can, you know, we're, we're, we're shifting. We're trying to do our little way of shifting society. Mm. So um, that's the other aspect to it is that you can do some things that don't always make financial sense, but maybe make, I don't know, universal sense or karmic sense. Yeah, that's <laughs> amazing. You've sort of created the ultimate freedom for you and your business. Like you said, you're not beholden to anyone. And a lot of people in those early days, they are so hell bent on raising funds and, you know, um, fast growth and, you know, quick exits and all of that kind of stuff. And it's really cool to hear that you did have a long-term, you know, vision for this business and you're willing to take the time to, you know, build it brick by brick. And, um, you know, there's something to be said about that. And there's, there's, I think it's a strong thing for a lot of people that are getting started to hear because, you know, you jump on LinkedIn and all you hear is sort of like the successful rounds that people have just had. And But on the same token, there are a lot of people out there grinding daily, just trying to sort of figure out how the hell to make it through. So, you know, I can, um, it's great to know that, you know, a business as successful as yours has managed to get through to the other side, um, you know, by building it strategically and brick by brick slowly. Yeah. And in, in many ways, it's, it's not the easier way, mm. you know, it's, it's challenging and grindy and, um, but certainly there's maybe a piece that comes with it a little bit more and, mm. and, um, you can be more intentional in what you're trying to build. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 uh, there's, there's definitely pros and cons. Mm. Um, but I don't, I do see that there's, I think I was like standing alone on an Island in this philosophy for a while, but I am seeing people start to come around to it now. Mm. You know, I think that we are starting to come to the end of the days of raise money, build the business, sell to a strategic. I do think that that well is starting to dry up, right? You're seeing a lot of the strategic sell off the natural food businesses that they brought in or discontinue them. Um, and uh, so people have to think about it differently. And I don't think that we can count on, say, investment banks to be the next buyers to mm. you know, solve our problem. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. That's great advice. And so I think this model will become more and more popular. Yeah. Um, where it's just like, do it smart, do it tight, yeah. you know, build it in a sustainable way. You know, you're not going to be rolling in it, but you you can be proud of what you're doing and you can build something that can stick around and 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 eventually get to the right place. Yeah. If we were to fast forward a year from now and that you could say to me that you had had your best year ever, what would you have accomplished? Well, I mean, we have we have uh, priorities for the year. So I'd be working through those yep. uh, the distribution side. We're, we're working to become uh, a national distributor. So. Mm -hmm big piece of that would be there check that box um from a brand side um there's a couple uh in the u.s there's a couple of key retailers that we have pieces of but we'd like to have the whole thing mm -hmm. so, uh, that will give us the sorry <coughs> that will give us the scale sort of on the manufacturing side there seems to be sort of at least on a small scale there's sort of three levels of profitability these numbers aren't perfect, but let's say there's, there's, you know, you have the small craft guys where it's like, you're doing two, 300,000 and you sell mostly at a market and you're the only employee mm -hmm. and you can make a teeny bit of money, you know, yeah. like you make 25 grand for yourself as, as a salary yeah. and you can do that. And then there's this sort of uh, 800 to a million 
to maybe a million and a half brand where you got maybe a supervisor or two and, and you're making it yourself in a sort of small space and you're selling to some, some, some people and you can to, to probably maybe Western Canada or across Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you can make a little bit of money there, right? Catch out a nice livelihood. Probably make like 50,000 or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, but then after that, you now start selling to bigger customers who require, you know, passive certification. Um, you got to have now, as you scale up, you have to have like operations and QA, QC, um, and you have to have a marketing department and then you have to have a sales team. Like the, the infrastructure needs go through the roof after like a couple million. Yeah. So there's like, there's like a zone of death between these sort of maybe, I don't know, 3 million and like 12 million range. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's a, a, a lot of work to kind of get there and be at the right scale. So the reason that I bring this in is that, you know, we've been, uh, over the last bunch of years, we've been working through that to get to the sort of the, 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 the profitable level as a manufacturer. And, um, and in the last year we've, we've kind of got there. I mean, we're not raking it in, but we've got to the, to the, the profit slash break even kind Congratulations. of on that business, but you have to be, you know, you gotta be well North of 10 million mm. to do that. So what I'm saying is there's these tiers of, of profitability and, and these numbers may move depending on yeah. your future, but um, you, you know, you can't, you, you want to go from like here to here really quick, but it takes time sometimes. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say success comes like we, we know that from here, we, we can use the same infrastructure to go way up there. Mm-hmm. So kind of you're anxious to, to build that. So you can then, you know uh, and I tend to be someone that wants to do things properly. So I tend to go, okay, what do we need to do this? And I build it out um, so that we can have the highest chance of success. Mm-hmm. You mentioned right at the very start of the conversation that, you know, back in 1996, you were building on the, you know, the shoulders of giants that have come before you. You could probably, you know, say the same thing today. Like you're, I would love to know if you're, um, you know, working with a core group of advisors that you leverage to help you develop your business so that you can get to that next level. Uh, for sure. I mean, there's um, a couple different levels. Like, for, of course, first of all, when I first started, I'd call anybody and I'd be like, oh my God, I admire this guy or this guy. So I'd call them up or email them. And yep. most of them were pretty darn good. They'd sit down and chat with me, give me some time. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs nowadays do that as well. And I, I think it's a great idea. You know, you just, you got to be careful. If you talk to too many people, then you get too many opinions. It starts to get confusing, but <laughs> pick the ones that you like their style that the kind of align that just feel right with who you are. Um, but as far as advisors go uh, a couple aspects, I was in a, um, a forum group, uh, with a group, uh, called cafe. It's a family business association in Canada. Um, and I was in a forum group in that, uh, for 17 years. And then after that, I joined YPO and I'm in a foreign group in that as well. So those are, you know, a group of like eight people, non-competing businesses. You meet every month. You, you talk about, talk, you know, you get quite um, detailed on what's going on in your life and, and mm-hmm. business and personal because mm-hmm. you know, personal growth comes along with business growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I've had those two forum groups to really, you know, through the years to, to lean on and really challenge me. 
And that's a good thing. When they get to know you, they have no fear of challenging you on stuff or calling out your bullshit. <laughs> that's which, that's which exactly is what, what you want. want, right? Like yeah. that friend yeah. is the person that's willing to tell you the stuff that you don't want to hear, mm-hmm. but you should hear it. Yeah. And so that's been really good. Um, you know, I've got a uh, group of guys in the industry. Um, like I mentioned that podcast earlier, Richard being one of them, mm. um, uh, that we'd meet, you know, for over the last, I want to say about, uh, 12 to 14 years we've been meeting, you know, every kind of quarter we have a dinner and nice. anytime I got a question, I can always reach out. Um, and so th- that's sort of an informal group. That's been great. Mm-hmm. Uh, to kind of lean on and they'll challenge me and we'll just talk through stuff. And we kind of grew up in the industry together. Um, so that's been really good. Um, and then there's just other individuals this, that I got a lot of time for, and I just can pick up the phone and chat with them. Yeah. And so depending on what the issue is, I'll just call them and say, Hey, what do you think about this? And so that's one of the things I like about the industry. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, I feel lucky in that department. I've got a, a couple of groups to lean on. Mm-hmm. Uh, should I want to, especially because I'm not, I don't have a partner. I mean, I, Jason uh, was my partner. Uh, he was active for the first two years and then yep. I actually brought him out about uh, seven years ago. Okay. Um, uh, so today I don't have a, a partner and, yep. and good to have some other people to talk to yeah i would suggest it's probably one of the most critical components of um seeing success in business you know um it's been a a common theme on this podcast as well when i've been speaking to business owners and operators that you know you're really only successful as successful as the people that you've got around you whether it's your employees or the network of peers or you know um or confidence that you can uh, that you can bounce ideas off so great to hear that it's a, a part of your repertoire as well yeah, actually, I neglected to mention one. There was another one called Spiral Table that was like a sustainability group. Uh, a friend of mine, Rob Sinclair, put together, and mm-hmm. and there was a, a nice group of us that were, you know, trying to figure out how to make our businesses more sustainable and and yeah. you know, but then you'd talk business and you could always be there for each other. So that was that was another group that was good to lean on. So I, I feel very lucky, as I mentioned. That's great. And I've kept you for an hour. I know you're a busy man and you want to get on with the day. So I think we should wrap it up here. We've covered so much ground and uh, I'm going to find it really hard to uh, actually find a soundbite to put out there on social for everybody to listen to, because there's so many nuggets of gold in today's conversation. So thank you very much for your time. <laughs> well, thanks. I'm honored that you, that you wanted the chat and that you reached out and, and um, you know, for anybody that listens to this, I'm always glad to talk to entrepreneurs and, and, and share my mistakes and learnings uh, for them because I'm cheering everyone else along. You know, yep. this is, we're still a growing industry that, that needs fresh blood coming in and, mm-hmm. and, and really building it up. So I'm glad to cheer them along and assist in whatever way I can. Yeah, it's great to hear. And um, I guess a great example of um, somebody doing that on a, a great scale is Mike Fatter. He's got his podcast out there and, you know, he is actively out there coaching and mentoring people too. And, you know, like you suggested early on, he was one of the the early founders back in the 90s when uh, you were getting started too. So it's great to see that you guys are all out there and, you know, um, playing the role of coaching and mentoring and, you know, cheering along the industry. It's awesome. For sure. Well, thanks for getting all these stories out there. I appreciate it. No worries, mate. Hey, listen. Um, yeah, if anybody wanted to get in touch, I'm assuming that uh, LinkedIn is the best way to go about it. Sure, start there, and then I'll just share my email. It's just my email is just Ian at Left Coast Naturals. It's pretty easy. Awesome. Well, look, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it. Have a good one. Same with you. Bye. 
Thanks again for taking the time out of your busy day to join me for today's episode. As always, if you'd like to continue the conversation or if you've got any questions, feel free to shoot me an email at hayden at thepackheavypodcast.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn or Instagram at thepackheavypodcast. And if you'd like to learn a little bit more about how I can help you with your business and your packaging vision, feel free to drop me a line and we'll continue the conversation there too. I'll see you next week.